Sass and Cyrus, welcome to this episode of our show. Today I'm talking to Pete Ryan. He is a co-founder of CoSell, now rebranded as High Five. And our conversation is, as always, is around SaaS, building MVPs, launching, finding a product market fit. But today's conversation is special because it's not only about growth strategies, but also about the mindset as a founder that you need to have to go through that stage from zero to one. Some, some tough truth conversation that we have. Check out this short clip just to get a quick taste of what we're discussing today. Or else they just simply won't survive at a startup, right? Because, you know, in the words of um, Elon Musk, right? Like working in a startup is like eating broken glass every day. Um, and so you, you actually have to learn how to like be okay with, with um, things in the world around your startup not being okay, right? And that's kind of an uncomfortable position to be in. Um, but if you have folks that have like just always been in this like okay world at this big company, things are like, you know, just um, growing and growing and, you know, you're not having to solve like real problems, right? Um, and kind of the zero to one category, then those folks aren't really necessarily the the right folks for you to to uh, to be looking at and hiring, and so that would be my biggest advice for startups looking to um, find folks: is it's less about the resume, um, way more about SaaS founders. This game is as much about skills as much as about your mindset and how do you approach this game in order to win. Let's go through the full episode right after this brief sponsorship segment. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insiders Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. SaaS Insiders, I welcome you to this episode of our show. Today, I'm honored to be joined with Pete Ryan. He is a founder of CoSell, and today we're going to talk a lot of topics, starting from investment, bringing the right people to your team, and just having those metrics internally that will, that will tell you whether you're growing or not sustainably. With that said, Pete, I welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, Vlad. For those who might not know you yet, if you could give a 60-second introduction on who the Pete is, where you're coming from background-wise and what you're working on right now. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Pete Ryan, co-founder of CoSell. We founded the company about two and a half years ago. Um, it's a relationship platform for B2B sales teams. Where I started off in my career was in San Francisco, working at Oracle in, in Redwood City. And so selling database infusion middleware. Spent about a year at Oracle and was like, okay, I want to join a smaller company. And that company was LinkedIn, which was had about 200 employees. And so they were just kind of getting their sales team rocking and rolling. And so I was in the first class of, of salespeople to join. And I've you know, got a few, few promotions while I was there, helped start up the LinkedIn sales solutions division, leading up their SMB sales team. 
And so, yeah, at the time it was just LinkedIn inside of Salesforce. That was the product. And obviously today it's very much more built out with, you know, LinkedIn Sales Navigator. But yeah, we basically brought on the first hundred customers, went on to kind of join Double Dutch because I wanted to go even smaller, which was, you know, a company that was in the mobile event app space, you know, was mentored by the co-founder, Pankaj Prasad, great experience working there. And started my own company, GoGoHire, which was a hiring marketplace for sales talent. And then joined Trello as their head of enterprise sales. Trello got acquired by Atlassian. Atlassian is really where I kind of stumbled across, you know, referrals for sales as being a really major pain point. And so here we are with CoSell, two and a half years in and loving every minute of it. And that's, yeah, if there's anything else you want to add, you know, happy to, happy to chat about it. Well, you mentioned quite a few names behind your shoulders in terms of experience. So I'm pretty sure Saxon yeah. Sardis are really curious to learn from your experience. So when you start yeah. the co-sell, because you start from zero, right, as a company, the question is, how do you get the right team? I know I have a very specific opinion on how do you qualify people and how, how do you treat the resumes when they come in? How do you treat those big names on their on their sheets, on their CVs. I'm curious to learn, what's your take on this? Let's say I'm a SaaS insider. I'm about to start my own company. I need a team. Like, what do I do to, to pick the yeah. best ones? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know, early days of CoSell, right? It was just myself and Brendan Cassidy. And so I knew Brendan, you know, from our, you know, our days at LinkedIn. He was really early there. He was like employee 15 at LinkedIn. And so I had known him for a number of years. He was actually a customer of mine when I was working on GoGoHire. And so it was just us, right? And, uh, you know, we basically had to build out our own kind of engineering and product team. And so the first place you want to start, you know, when you're, when you're looking to kind of build out that team or just really, you know, employees kind of like two to 10, right? You, you definitely want to go kind of with, you know, that is in my mind, just the best place to start. And so in, even when you go inside, you know, even if it's a second degree connection, you want to do a ton of back back channel references. I think the biggest learning, you know, for us is like, even if you think the candidate is the perfect candidate on paper, right. With a lot of big names, you know, you know, experience kind of in, in companies that have, you know, gr grown substantially in the kind of zero to one phase, right. Of like, you know, two to 10 employees, you know, having those, those like big names are just, it becomes completely irrelevant. Right. And so, you know, really what you want to look for is like that hustle, that aptitude, and, you know, that love for like solving problems in the zero to one category in the startup world, folks that are, you know, resilient and persistent and just like overall, you know, driven. Right. And so, you know, folks that I think, you know, someone have like a bit of a chip on their shoulder are the people you're wanting to look for. Right. And, and so, you know, if they have kind of that zero to one experience, that's all the better. If they don't, then you have to look for these other attributes, right. In them or, or else they just simply won't survive at a startup. Right. Because you know, in the words of Elon Musk, right? Like working in a startup is like eating broken glass every day. And so you, you actually have to learn how to like be okay with, with things in the world around your startup not being okay, right? And that's kind of an uncomfortable position to be in. But if you have folks that have like just always been in this like okay world at this big company, things are like, you know, just growing and growing and, you know, they're, you're not having to solve like real problems, right. And kind of the zero to one category, then those folks aren't really necessarily the, the right folks for you to, to, to be looking at and hiring. And so that would be my biggest advice for startups looking to find folks is it's less about the resume, way more about, you know, aptitude, 
you know, folk, look for traits like, you know, people that have like a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And, and I, obviously one thing I completely left out is like, they have to fit with your culture. And so, you know, early on, right. Think about kind of think about the values that you own, right. As a, as a human being, because that is a little bit a part of like the DNA of your company. And then when you're probably around like, you know, five to 10 employees, like actually start to think, think about, okay, like what, what does the DNA, DNA of our company look like? Like, what are the values that are non-negotiable for us? Write those down. And that's kind of what's going to propel your company forward and in, in keeping everyone aligned, right? Because if your values aren't aligned, like execution becomes really, really tough, right? Because, you know, you're not rowing the boat all in the same direction. And so, yeah, that's, that's, you know, can t- certainly talk a lot more about like people and culture, but I'll kind of wrap it up there. Well, I, I do agree that culture is a separate topic for one hour conversational or yeah, like multiple totally. day event. I, yeah. I totally resonate with what you said, because when I initially started, I was looking for technical skills in my, in my company. So the first three hires, it was mostly like, Hey, let me get someone who, who knows how to do this thing. But as we grew, we understood that people need to be on the same wavelength. And if they're not, it's irrelevant. So now everyone's kind of afraid I'll be doing a technical interview with them, but we actually just do the talk and we should just talk to the values and what they want to achieve in life. And based on that, of course, because we read the, their skills, the technical skills, but it's most like, are there the people that we see ourselves work with in the next couple of years is basically what defines our decision. Do we want them or not? That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of the soft skills, right? That you can't really see on a piece of paper or resume and cause you know, you, you know, folks and you can learn the hard skills, right? You can learn how to become a better engineer, a better salesperson, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's the things around, you know, it's the soft stuff, right? The persistence, the, you know, the drive that kind of chip on your shoulder that makes or breaks, you know, that first founding team of a, of a, of a startup. Yeah. I mean, in the end of the day, you would probably be seeing and talking to them more than you see your family during like early stages, right? So this will be the oh, people yeah, you'll be talking with a, a lot. And if you hate them or you cannot work with them, I mean, what 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 good does it make if they know the technical stuff, right? If if, if you just cannot communicate with them, a hundred percent, yeah, couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. One thing, uh, kind of moving to the next topic, I wanted to ask you about is, so let's say you have a team. And as a SaaS founder, of course, you need to launch your product. Obviously, the first version that everyone calls MVP, which mm-hmm. for some reason is, is, is not an objective, but a subjective term these days. Everyone yeah, defines yeah. MVP the way they want to. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, how did you approach building your first version, your MVP to market? Basically, like how much time it took, but well, what, what it was, the process, how do you define what the MVP is? What do you think are the things you would do differently, maybe, if you were to go back in time, some learning experiences? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the biggest advice I can give to any founder is that, in my experience, right, like people will only use your product if it helps them achieve a job to be done or a goal that they're looking to achieve faster with less effort and higher accuracy than any other alternative out there in the market, Right. If, if if you're not like at least three x better in those categories against any other other alternative, they simply like won't use it and they won't continue to use it. And so there was actually a a product manager, an advisor of ours, who actually recommended us checking out Thrive. So they basically, you know, they have these this whole course right of like videos around 
you know, what is jobs to be done theory? Cause you you know, you can read, you read plenty of books around like jobs to be done, but yeah, this, I, it feels like the, these videos really dive deeper into it. Plus there's software to kind of back it up. And so, you know, I think the first thing is like, okay, are you, are you solving a job that one is worth solving? Right. And then two, are you, are you doing it in a way that again, is the lowest effort, the fastest and with the highest level of accuracy. And so I think if you look at like the best products out there, right, you know, they do those things in a, in an order of magnitude better than any other, other alternative. And the greater the Delta, the more powerful, you know, the more expensive, the, you know, the, the more reach, right. You're going to have with the product, so on and so forth. And so, you know, when we built our, our MVP, I would say we didn't really follow that, right. It was more like, okay, this is a really interesting space we want to be in. We built this product, we got it in the hands of users and we didn't really think through like, okay, in their day to day, like, are they, is this actually helping them solve, solve a problem or, you know, accomplish a job that they've hired us to do. And, you know, it took actually a few iterations, right. For us to figure that out and we're, and we're still figuring it out. Right. But, you know, today it's, you know, for us, the prop, the job, right. Is I'm a seller. I need to hit my quota. I need to reach target buyers. I need to close business and introductions and referrals are definitely the, the best way to do that. Most strategic way to do that. And, you know, especially with, with what's happened in the market, we're in this, you know, economic downturn. Companies are thinking about, okay, how do we go to market more profitably? You know, sellers and, and, and prospects, right? Alike, they're so fed up with like cold outreach, cold email, cold calling, cold in mail. And you throw like AI and automation on top of that. And it actually just like makes the problem so much worse. And so for every CRO and CMO that we talk to, they're always like, you know, okay, we're, this, this year, right? It's less about, we're going to do those things. We're going to do kind of cold outreach, all of that as a go-to-market channel. We're going to do the demand gen, but we're also going to look at like partner-led growth. We're going to look at community-led growth and product-led growth. And then for us, right, we're like, okay, well, you know, world, wake up. Relationship-led growth is right in front of us, right? And so, you know, the most strategic path to entry is through someone you know. And so, you know, that could be an investor, an advisor, a customer, a partner, a friend that you have at another company. And, and so, you know, for us, we kind of built this MVP that, that basically is a Chrome extension. It sits on top of LinkedIn. And so if as a seller, if I'm trying to reach, you know, so-and-so, obviously I can figure out how to do that. I can navigate that by like sending an email to the mutual connection or send an email to the mutual connection, but none of it is like operationalized. And so that's what we built with CoSell is like, it's just a couple clicks. You can request the intro. We've made it really easy for the connector to then forward on the intro. And then for the sales leader, right. And, and the head of marketing, it's all about like, you know, have I, you know, how many leads have we generated through relationship-led growth? You know, how many deals have been closed? And so we offer that like reporting and analytics. And so, yeah, I think just, you know, biggest learning for us is spend that time really focused on the problem itself, right? Talk to a ton of users, you know, and like kind of put them in a different cohorts, right? Start to look at patterns of like, okay, you know, and get super, super specific around like who your key user is. Definitely follow the, I, I believe it, right? I believe in the jobs to be done framework, hands down. You know, I think there's other frameworks you can also pull in. And then, yeah, build something, it, you know, 
MVP is kind of, it's morphed over time, right? I think the bar for like an MVP has just gotten way higher, right? Because there's just more SaaS companies out there and, and technology companies. And so it's more like your minimum workable product, right? It has to work. It has to accomplish, you know, the job that you've set out to, to accomplish. And so, you know, do those things and then, you know, stay in front of your users. And, you know, I, we talked about this before the, the, uh, the call, Vlad, there's like certain winning metrics, right? That you want to focus in on. And our investor, Tim Connor hammered this into us. And I, again, I believe this like through and through is that the first thing you want to focus on is winning metric zero, which is do people like your product? I'm sorry, no, does it work, right? Can they get the job done that they've hired you to do? The, and then the first metric is, do they like it or do they, do they like it? Right. So are they, are, when you message them about it, they're like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I really like it a lot. Right. And then winning metric two is, do they really like it? So look at mixed panel or amplitude or whatever you're using for your analytics and look at, okay, how many users are coming back? What cohorts of users are coming back? Are they coming back and, and doing that desired action that look, you're looking to have them take? And then winning metric three is really, you know, can you, can you grow profitably, right? Can you, can through, you know, can via the channels, right. That you're selling your product through, whether it be, you know, sales led, marketing led, partner led, relationship led, can you do that profitably? Right. And so if you can do that, then it's just about pouring more gas on the fire. And that's, you know, I kind of took your question, Vlad, and expanded big time on it over the last two and a half years. I would say those are the biggest learnings that we've had as a company. Just before we dive in into metrics and, and growth at all costs, th things like becoming yeah. kind of irrelevant these days. One thing I'm wondering is, do you remember how much time it took you from, okay, when you did an MVP to the point where, yes, we're launching the MVP. Do you remember how much maybe months or weeks, I don't know, it took you to, to get this off the ground, like the first version that, that you launched to your users? Yeah. So for us, it was like, it was... I would say three months, but we spent the, like when, when you have all the design in place and you've battle tested the design and that's another thing I, I really recommend is like spend a lot of time on the design phase. Cause like before you start throwing a bunch of code at it, like, like code is just, it, it's kind of like, you know, you're, uh, you're solidifying the product into where, to where it just becomes a lot harder to change. And so if you spend a lot of time in kind of that, you know, building the high fidelity prototypes and Figma, getting users to click and click through it, you know, asking, asking them like, you know, you know, what they like about it, what they change, and then just kind of view like, you know, how they're clicking through it. Are they getting stuck? You know, those are all things that I think are, you know, somewhat overlooked because like we all as founders, right, we want to rush into okay, we got to build this product and we got to go sell it, right? And so, yeah, the more time you can spend in, you know, user testing, user research, design testing, and then even prior to that, that like jobs to be done framework. I think, you know, again, that's where you'll, you'll learn a lot, right? You'll, and you'll avoid a lot of mistakes from, you know, at the end of the day, you still need a product that people can click through is until it's in the wild and like launched. And so that's another thing is like build, build something that is flexible enough into where if you decide to kind of go right or left, you can do that because it's very likely that you're going to have to kind of change in, in a way. And so if you build it flexible enough, then like, you know, you're not kind of like hard coded into like one aspect of the business or product. And so, yeah, th those are all kind of 
some additional tips I'm, I'm throwing out there? You know, Pete, I like three months. I really like it. It's, I would say, when people are speaking about weeks, that's getting exciting, right? But I think having, having two to three months to build an MVP is a really good, good point. When I interview founders on this podcast, a lot of times they say it took us 11 months, 15 months to see the first version. And they're like, oh my God, this can be done so much faster, right? If it's, if it's done right. So I, I want to recognize mm -hmm. that your speed to execution is, is, is pretty phenomenal. I completely agree. Like, I, I, I do think it also depends on the product itself, right? You know, I have like one, yeah, I have a friend who's kind of doing this like generative AI stuff and it's just like super, super technical. So, you know, his, his time horizon for launch is just, yeah, I think like the, the more you, the more you can like cut back. So if you give yourself three months, you're like, okay, this is where, we'll, this is our launch date, right? And the more you can cut back, you'll realize that like, you don't need all those features that you thought you needed. So anyways, all I'm saying is we're aligned there, Vlad. So, yeah. I, I like it. I, I like your concept of setting the deadline rather than the scope you want to achieve, right? Because that will make it like you make the scope variable, not the timeline. And, the, and then you work in favor of making the MVP as lean as possible. Uh, one question sure. I, was, I, was ask, I was wondering, you were talking about important metrics that define whether you can succeed with, with the SaaS business. And one of them, the last one, number three, you said grow profitably. Right, and grow profitably means grow grow sustainably, because obviously, mm -hmm. if you are if you're burning through cash, there's there's a certain limit, of, like certain amount of time you can do that. After that, you need to raise again, right? So my question is, there's an idea, or at least it was an idea, of venture-backed SaaS companies is growth at all cost, meaning that we want to acquire as many users as possible and grow to as many multiples as possible in one year, and then the next year so that we can exit as fast as possible. So my question to you from your landscape, now that you also raised funds for your company and you're actively running it, do you see that shifting from growth to cost into profitability? And if so, what do you think are the reasons and what do you think is happening on the market of VC-funded startups at the moment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you saw in the growth stage, right? Just like every, every growth stage company, right? They raised at so much money, at these crazy multiples, we were kind of like all drunk on, you know, the, the market and, and what happened there. And so there's been this huge influx of cash to, to the point where, you know, we're going to see just a lot of companies just either get scooped up and acquired because that's the better option for them versus raising at a massive down round, you know, or, you know, if, if they haven't made cuts already, right, we're, we're going to see a lot of companies perish, right? That's just what's going to happen. And so, you know, I think, so, yeah, I mean, your point around grow at all costs, right? It has been that way in the Valley for a very long time. And so, yeah, I think there's this whole new concept of, you know, let's, let's turn a profit, like who would have thought, right? And so, you know, now that we're in this kind of new era of, you know, profitability, it, it becomes even more important for companies to look at new strategies versus kind of how Salesforce grew, right? Salesforce invested, you know, it was like a one to two ratio of like, okay, you know, for, for every dollar spent in sales and marketing equaled $2 in revenue. Right. And so, you know, and that's just, I would say that those days of growing in that way are, are really just not sustainable anymore. Right. Because those channels that we all relied on for sales and marketing have become so noisy to where you know, it's, it's hard to grow your, your company on the back of 
just sales led and marketing led and expect that kind of, you know, one to two ratio, right? Of, okay, I'm going to spend, you know, X amount on building out an SDR team or BDR team. We're going to spend X amount on, on marketing spend, digital marketing, and then we're going to, exp- you know, and th- that's going to equal, you know, twice as much, right? That So, you know, and, and that multiple, by the way, isn't even that sexy anymore, right? Because you've seen companies like, like Atlassian, right? That have been, you know, just known for, you know, no sales team. Although I, w- I did work there and I know that they have a sales team, but just, high, you know, it, they've grown, they grew for like 20 years with really very limited sales team, right? It was just all product-led growth. And so, you know, they kind of invented the model of being able to grow this way. But even those companies, right, that were, you know, PLG companies that had these crazy multiples, I mean, we've, we've certainly seen them, you know, that simmer down as well. And so, you know, I think you, it's almost like you have to do all these things, unfortunately, right? You, you kind of have to, to do the sales-led, marketing-led in, in some capacity. You need to do the PLG. You need to do the CLG, right, community-led growth. And, you know, in our, our opinion, you need to do, you know, relationship-led growth also. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really about like where you sequence those things, right? Because you're going to have one channel kind of plateau and you're going to have to realize, okay, I need to figure out like what's our next, you know, growth lever, right? And hopefully your product and engineering team are building different, different products, expanding on the suite of products you're offering to increase your ACV. So yeah, it's kind of a blend of all these things. Uh, the sequencing of them are obviously going to be different, right? Because you early days, right? You can certainly get by with, you know, sales led growth, marketing led growth, relationship led growth. But then you know eventually you know you're going to want to figure out you know PLG or you know partner led growth, product led growth, all that you know. And so th- those things can happen later. But you know more and more companies are kind of hitting that ceiling just relying on like sales led and marketing led. I mean, it, yeah, the days, days of Salesforce, right? Like, you know, that, that was their go-to-market strategy. I mean, the, I think those days are, are dwindling. I mean, we are seeing, you know, you, you probably heard on that, like all in podcast, right? Talk, I'm talking, you know, our company is actually going to need investment, right? Or can you just bootstrap with, you know, with Copilot, right? And if you're able to, you know, bootstrap with Copilot, your engineers are, you know, three X more productive, you know, are, yeah. Is, is it, or 10 X more productive? These like, you know, 10 X engineers. Right. Um, you know, so yeah. Where does that go? Right. I think that's a bit extreme, right. I think it's a, a bit extreme. Like I think companies will need to, to raise some amount of capital because yeah, you can't just build a product and like expect that users will come. Right. That's just not how it works. But uh, I think there will be like a happy medium of companies needing to re- raise raise less, right? Because they're more capital efficient, they're more, you know, they're getting out of more out of AI and other technologies. But yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the next 10 years looks like. I mean, it's getting, you know, Reed Hoffman always used to say, like, you know, the future is always, it's always stranger than you think, and it happens faster than you think, right? And so I think that's kind of held true over the, even in the last 10 years, right? It's definitely like, you know, the things that have happened, uh, you know, Apple Vision, you know, it's the, all these things are really wild technologies that really didn't exist, you know, call it 10, 15 years ago. So, uh, or they did exist, but, you know, not in the way that they do today. So, 
I think AI is probably the most impactful out of those that you mentioned, because just like you said, Copilot, ChatGPT, and you probably can have a team of three people instead of that team of 10. I've, I've seen, I've heard a lot of stories from secondhand of two people, two co-founders building a SaaS company. One of them right. is already in ChatGPT to write emails, to write all of the posts, schedule hundreds of posts, high quality. The other one is using ChatGPT to write code. And when they approach VCs, VCs are asking them, well, if I give you a million dollars, how are you going to spend it? And they say like, we don't need 1 million. <laughs> You're right, right, yeah. We, we, need, we need 50K, so we have two salaries. And that's all we right. need, and we'll just take it to the next level. So it, it, it almost feels like there's going to be this era of like micro-investments where the entry barrier to enter SaaS world is much lower now because you don't, have a, you don't need to have a team of like 100 people. You can mm -hmm. do the same amount of yeah. team of 10 if you, do, if you do it correctly. And basically, the cost will go down. And that will mean that they could raise a much lower round. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how it unfolds. I'm not sure how it will impact the investor side, because if right. they have, you know, a few million, if, you, if they have like 50 million to deploy, and now instead of writing a million dollar checks, they're writing, you know, $10,000 checks. That's a lot mm -hmm. of checks you need to write. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a that's printer. Right. You need to print them, you know, that's how fast you need to do. So I'm, I'll be curious to know how it affects their decision-making process and what are the other, let's say, alternative ways to close those deals will be happening because if there is such a huge volume of checks you need to write, you might be simplifying some of your due diligence and some of the process. So really looking forward to see how it all unfolds. 100%. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, that, you know, is hiring remote, right? Because, you know, you, you can hire, like, if you're based in the US, hire overseas. And, you know, I would say we've had a lot of luck in hiring overseas. And I, it, it feels like the work ethic is actually stronger. The work ethic is stronger. So it's like GBT, co-pilot, hiring overseas. And, you know, before you know it, like your costs have gone way down, right? I think, and also like even doesn't have to have to be overseas. I mean, it could be just folks outside of New York City, San Francisco, and these like large metropolitan areas where, you know, a, 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 a 10X engineer, right, may cost like 400K, in, you know, in San Francisco, whereas, you know, 10X engineer in, you know, anywhere else in the world, right, is, is, is much less, right? And so, yeah, it'll be, I think it's, that'll be interesting, right? That will definitely be interesting to see how, how things evolve, but yeah, it's already kind of dissipated out of SF in a way, right. To other parts of the U S and then is, is the question is, okay, is it going to dissipate even further outside of the U S and other countries more so than we're, we're, what's happened today. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd love your thoughts on that. Right. Because, you know, is it, yeah, you moved to Austin, you know, just, just a few months ago. So I would say because some of my, part of my teams are from Ukraine and Europe, we still have seven to eight hour difference with them. Mm -hmm. And I can definitely see it being an obstacle. It's not a hard wall that we hit, but it definitely makes things higher, feel like tougher. We, we need to kind of, you know, ride a bike uphill a little bit because of that. So I would say time zone difference will still remain. But just like you said for about San Francisco and those popular areas, if you look up the commercial real estate, which was extremely, uh, let's say, unbreakable asset. It was like an asset class that felt to be most the most stable. Now those offices are just empty. 
right? A lot of right. someone gave I a statistic know. of like forty percent of offenses in San Francisco are empty. I don't, don't don't quote me on this, but I heard it's 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 two digit of percentage of offices mm-hmm. that are currently not used because it's resource inefficient. Just like you said, profitability first, right? If you can hire someone outside of the city, outside of the Bay Area, you're spending less time on the actual resources. You spend less time on money on on the office. And overall, it's just like more efficient. So it's it's going to be a really, a really big shift, I think, that will impact not only SaaS, but all the industries that are connected to it. For example, commercial real estate as a, as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah, you, you have what, Salesforce, Twitter, Facebook, all kind of pulling out of SF. You know, the, the Salesforce tower, right? I guess that's, you know, becoming empty in a way. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty wild, all, all the things that are, are happening in San Francisco. Yeah, I, I think more, more good stuff to come. I think it's all positive and yeah, it'll be, i say next 10 years. I'm excited to be a part of it. Well, I guess people learned something from COVID and from the isolation. So I think over the, this couple of years, they learned that remote work exists and it's pretty much possible. So I'm also excited to see how it all unfolds. Pete, yeah. one question I'm, I'm, I'm asking all the time on SaaS Insiders, which is you probably read some books during your journey, entrepreneurial journey. You probably watched some inspirational speakers, joined some communities that helped you grow as a person and as a founder. If you could name two to three resources, be it once again, books, speakers, mentors, communities, what are the things that you would recommend others to tap into that helped you in, in a big way? For sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a really big advocate of behavioral psychology. And so books like Drive or Nudge or Predictably Irrational, yeah, these are books I like literally keep on my desk and I kind of flip through them every so often. Because yeah, when it comes to user behavior, when it comes to like what drives, you know, people on your team, you know, those are just like great books. I'm a big fan of from like just a day-to-day kind of like there's a lot of CEO books out there, founder books. You know, this one I would say is different, right? Because it goes into like the tactical day to day. And it's a book called The Great CEO Within. And so, yeah, huge fan of that book. And and so, uh, yeah, that, that's book wise. That's like book wise. I, I guess like, you know, I'm, I'm less of a podcast person and so more like I'm audible. The latest hack is like, you know, you get the audible, you get it, you get it up to like 1.5x or maybe even 2x. And then you read along and I find that I just like fly through books, but also retain the info. And, like, and so the, yeah, that's kind of a, it's a, it's more expensive, right? Cause you got to buy the audible plus the book, but yeah, I found that to be a, a really good thing. So yeah. I'm a big fan of audiobooks as well. It helps you use your, let's say idle time. So when you're yeah, on a massage yeah. or when you're walking yeah. somewhere, when you're doing some things that don't require your say like mental bandwidth, if you could use yeah. the time efficiently, you're basically let's say winning a couple hours in your time that would be wasted otherwise. So I, I really, like that. I really like that. Yeah, same, same um, here. Pete, for those who, who, who are willing to, SaaS insiders, if they want to learn with you, maybe add value to you, maybe some potential investors who will be looking to collaborate with you, what would be the best way to get in touch? We'll be, we'll be leaving those things in the comment, not in the comment, but in the description. But just, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, is it the email? Is it the LinkedIn? What's the best way to approach you? Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. If you just type in Pete Ryan at Cosell, I should pop up. And then, yeah, if anyone wants to shoot me an email, that's fine too. It's just Pete at Cosell.io and always happy to chat 
I'm a pretty open book and, you know, I'll give it to you straight. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Pete, on the final note, I wanted to ask you if there was this one big idea that Sass Insiders picked from this episode, let's say they heard nothing but this idea. If this is the only thing they took home with them, what do you think that will be? Yeah, I think it, jobs to be done, right? Like for us, I, like that is just, you know, for me personally, right? That's been as, as not really like a product product founder, right? And someone has like kind of up level my skill set there as we've been thinking about product, like really thinking through kind of, okay, you know, what is the job to be done to accomplish a user's goal faster with the least amount of effort and the highest level of accuracy? And if you can get that right, and if you can do that in an order of magnitude better than any other alternative, then you're going to be on the right track, no matter what. They're not no matter what, but there's always market conditions. There's all these other things and competition, et cetera. But if you, if you can do that right, then you're, you're like, you know, one step of the way there. Pete Ryan, everyone. Pete, I thank you so much.